0: Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you to the orchestra for leading us so well this morning, for all those who've taken part, and all of those of you looking at the clock and saying, goodness me, my roast dinner is going to get burnt. Well, this is our anniversary, so I always say to people in these cases, think of it, those who are sports fans, think of it, do you ever complain if it goes to extra time? Uh, So... As we come to our anniversary today, I want to share something with you as a congregation. And this evening, Colin will be speaking uh, in a more evangelistic uh, message. Uh, but if anything, has been the focus of Charlotte Chapel over these almost 200 years. It's been our focus on this book, on God's Word, which we believe is the Word of God, the living Word of God. So, uh, will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and you'll find it on page, should come up on the screen, 1160. I just want to read the first 12 verses. This letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary... By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is God's Word. Now, on this church anniversary, I want to leave you with a theme, and the theme is this, treasure in jars of clay. And I simply want to focus just on the one verse from our reading, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And I want to say, as preachers often do, three simple things about this verse. First of all, in this verse, we have a striking paradox. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Treasure in jars of clay. It's a striking paradox. In a British context, it's like putting the crown jewels in a cardboard box rather than an ornate casket or a beautiful display cabinet. Now, I bought along with me a clay pot, a very cheap one. Got it from a garden centre. Unfortunately, I don't have any treasure to put in it. The nearest thing is my wife's jewellery, and she will tell you it doesn't exactly qualify. <laughs> uh, but even she would not put it in a clay pot, but in a jewellery box. See, treasure in jars of clay, two things that don't belong together, normally. Rather than complementing one another, they contrast with one another. Notice what kind of contrast there is between them. First of all, there's a contrast in quality. Clay pots are made of clay. Baked earth, cheap, easy to obtain. If you go to an archaeological dig, you will often find many shards of broken clay. Pottery scattered over the site. And interesting, though they are in providing clues to an ancient culture, they are of no intrinsic value. But treasure, well, that's a different thing. For discovering buried treasure is the stuff of dreams and fortunes. Not made of clay, of course, but of precious metals or precious stones. And that links in with another contrast, not only in quality, but also in beauty. Treasure is not... Just usually raw gold or raw silver or diamond or ruby. No, the metal has been extracted and refined. The precious stones are cut and polished. The two are brought together to make an object of great beauty and admiration. But a clay pot, well, it's hardly something of great beauty. Shaped though it may be by a potter, fired in a kiln, it's a mass-produced object that's created to be used rather than admired. And that, of course, leads to a third contrast in quality and beauty and, thirdly, in durability. Because of the materials used, the skill of the craftsman who shapes it, treasure is made to last. That's why it can still be discovered. And an and that admired centuries, even millennia after it's made. But, well, clay pots, I'm tempted to drop one, but I won't, are fragile Very easily they break, which is why many excavated sites, of course, are full of bits of broken pottery. Clay pots uh, don't usually last. Many of you will know that my early years, I worked overseas in India. It's a wonderful country, an amazing and diverse culture. And one of the best ways to get round India, if you've ever been to India or some of you from India, is, of course, by train, one of the lasting legacies of British rule. I once travelled from Calcutta, up in the northeast, down to Nagpur, where I lived in the centre of India. It took me 36 hours on a very slow train. And the interesting bit when you go to India, if you ever go, and you must go if you've never been, the interesting bit when you go to India and travel by train, is when you get to a station. There were 99 stations on this route, I counted them, from Calcutta to Nagpur, And when you arrive at the station, it's a hiving mass of people, but the most exciting bit is that everybody's trying to sell you something on the platform, and there's just this incredible cacophony of noise, of people shouting out their wares. Now, if you want a drink of tea, the chaiwala, that's the guy who sells the tea, has a slight problem. You see, the train may only be in the station for a matter of minutes and during that time he has to serve your tea, you have to drink it and he has to retrieve the cup before the train sets off again. So, so way back when I lived in India and I know things have almost certainly changed now with modern technology and so on, the chaiwala often would serve you tea in a clay pot like this without the hole in the bottom. And he didn't need to bother getting it back, because they're cheap and disposable. So what did you do when you drank your tea? Well, there were no waste bins in those days. You chucked it out the window. So whenever you got to an Indian station, you could look along the line by the platform, and it was just absolutely scattered with pieces of broken clay. But you wouldn't throw your treasure out the window, would you? Or keep it in a clay pot. That's the striking paradox we find in our verse. But let's get now to the point. What what point is the Apostle Paul making as he writes to these Christians in Corinth? Secondly, notice a surprising privilege. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What is the treasure that Paul is describing here? Well, it's not literal treasure. For contrary to what, so-called super-apostles said, who would come into the church in Corinth, and sadly some people still claim today, the Apostle Paul and his fellow messengers had very little by way of material wealth. Later in uh, in chapter 6 in this letter, he speaks of them as poor, yet making rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. No, the treasury is talking about that Christians possess is not material treasure. It is like that treasure that Jesus spoke about in his Sermon on the Mount. Treasure in heaven. And specifically here in the context, if you look at it carefully, the verses we read, the treasure is the light of the Gospel. It's the good news of God's love in Jesus, which is just described in verse 6, the verse before, verse 7. But what it says For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I said, as you know, as a Bible translator of sorts, that is a terrible phrase to translate. It's got about four, five genitives, one after the other. And I won't spend another hour explaining it, but what is he saying? He's saying that God has shone his light into our hearts, into our lives, to illuminate us so that we can understand who Jesus is. That in Jesus, the glory of God is seen in its fullest extent. Paul is actually writing probably from personal experience. You heard two testimonies. You probably know the story of how Paul himself became a Christian. On a journey to a place called Damascus on the road, a bright light shone from heaven. He was physically blinded by the light but for the first time, he saw who Jesus was. Because a voice from heaven said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus. It was a bombshell. And he realised who Jesus was. Blinded by the light, he saw clearly. And although the circumstances are different, that is what Saul and Lindsay have shared. What they've experienced. Who Jesus really is? I just pause to ask you. Has the light dawned for you yet? Have you seen who Jesus is? It's just possible that when he says we have this treasure in jars of clay, that he's talking about little clay pots into which they put a wick and some oil and would illuminate a room. It's probably not the correct meaning because these clay pots that have been excavated, the lamp ones, were actually quite pretty and ornate. But the illustration is a good one. For those who have received the light are meant to share the light. The light of the knowledge of Jesus is meant to irradiate their lives and illuminate the people around them. So, if you look at the verse, uh, the beginning of this chapter that we read, he says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry. And then he comes to verse 7 and he says, We have this treasure. God has placed his light in jars of clay so that people might see who Jesus is. So, if the treasure is the light of the Gospel, well, the jars of clay are obvious. The jars of clay refers to human beings. Poor, unworthy, frail, yet bearers of this treasure of the Gospel. Now, whatever way you read it, it is an amazing privilege to be a bearer of the good news of Jesus Christ. But is it not also, if you stop to think about it for a minute, a surprising privilege? That's why I chose the word. A surprising privilege. Just think for a moment of the resources available to the Lord Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. The One who made things simply by bringing them into being, by speaking His Word. Could He not have used a better container to carry the treasure of the Gospel to the ends of the earth than jars of clay like you and me? How about laser lights in the sky proclaiming the glory of His Son in unmistakable letters? You know, a million times the firework display at the end of the festival or New Year. But while the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19, God has chosen to convey the glories of His Son Jesus through human vessels. Or could not God, at whose command myriads of angels stand ready to do His bidding, could he not have used them to convey the good news of what he has done through his son Jesus? Don't you think the nations of the world, let alone your next door neighbour or your colleague at work, would be more impressed to be touched by an angel than listen to your fumbling attempts to explain who Jesus is and live out the gospel in where he has placed you? Yet, though though God does on occasion still use angels to point seekers who may often have no other means of knowledge, towards his son, they are not, and I want to suggest to you, they cannot be gospel messengers. Let me give you an example from the Bible, and then I'll give you an example from recent history. If you know the Bible, think of that remarkable event in human history, in the history of the church, that occurred and is recorded in Acts chapter 10. The gospel of Jesus had exploded in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, And all the new converts were Jews or people who were interested in Judaism. But in chapter 10, we find a Roman centurion coming to faith in Jesus. How did it happen? Well, listen to the words of the man. His name's Cornelius. This is what he says. Luke tells us the story in Acts 10. He says, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. And the angel announced to Cornelius, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No, it doesn't say that. I suggest the angel couldn't say that. That is not part of his commission. So, what did the angel say to Cornelius? He said to him, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter, He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, Cornelius says to Peter. It was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything you've got to tell us. And so Peter, also prepared for this by a momentous event, by a vision, comes and tells Cornelius the good news and he and those with him respond and are immediately baptised on faith in Jesus. You see, the treasure of the gospel was carried to Gentiles in a clay pot called Peter. Now, I suggest to you, it may not seem a very effective way of carrying the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. If this were a business venture, we'd have cut out the middle man, Peter. Especially in the view of the difficulties in persuading him, let alone the church in Jerusalem, that the gospel was for Gentiles, even Roman centurions of all people. Yet, this is the way that God has chosen to work. He has chosen to communicate the good news of His Son through human beings. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And such is still the case today, throughout the world. Let me relate to you a story. In fact, I'll update you on a story that I mentioned several years ago. It's a remarkable story. Timbuktu, Do you know where Timbuktu is? It's not a mythical place. It's actually in Mali in West Africa. Uh, it's the home of a world-famous mosque and a university. It was a centre for the spread of Islam in West Africa in the 15th and 16th centuries. And the Tamachek, or Tuareg, to give them the Arabic name, are a nomadic group of 700,000 people who navigate the desert region around Timbuktu. They are solidly Muslim, only a handful of Christians until recently. But one man, a young boy called Nuke, came to faith in Christ and despite considerable opposition, was once given poison which failed to kill him, continued in his faith, received training, became a pastor and returned to his hometown of Timbuktu. Timbuktu. He and his wife and a small group of believers, again despite opposition, continued to demonstrate the love of Christ by serving the most needy in the community, abandoned mothers and orphan children. But the going was still tough. The response was very small. And then something remarkable happened. It began to happen in that community. In March 1999, a highly esteemed army officer travelled from the desert to visit Nuuk. And he told him something which Nuke had already heard. Hundreds of people in the desert region from that community had all seen a vision. A vision of a man hovering over the ground, holding a book. It provoked great curiosity and wonder. Without being told, all of them identified the man as Jesus. Since the Koran speaks about of the return of Christ to earth. Uh, And visions are basic to Islamic belief and interpreters of visions inspire considerable respect. Yet, Nuke says, when this army officer came to visit him, he was seriously afraid for his life. That's what he says. I was sincerely nervous. I just tried to keep calm and share what I know about the return of Jesus. He was then invited to talk about the return of Jesus on FM radio. This launched a Sunday evening broadcast Eventually, an overwhelming desire for understanding grew into an interest in all the Bible has to say. Soon, Nuke was teaching the gospel, not only over the airwaves, but also in schools, hotels, offices, even Quranic schools and the Islamic University of Timbuktu. Nuke is amazed. What did the vision mean? The New Testament was about to be published after 10, 15 years of work had been translated into the language was about to be published and God was preparing the way for this people group to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, visions were used but clay pots like a man called Nuke to convey the message to communicate the good news of Jesus. This is God's chosen means of making Christ known of bringing good news. In another of his letters in Romans chapter 10 the Apostle Paul puts it like this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one (coughs) of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? This is our surprising privilege. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, on our anniversary... I speak to those of you who are committed to this local fellowship here in Charlotte Chapel, but also if you're a visitor, I'm sure it applies to your own church as well. Do we realize our privilege? If God has no other means put it another way if God chooses no other means to share the gospel other than a human carrier, does that not place an awesome responsibility on us as individuals and as a church? A surprising privilege. A wonderful privilege. Maybe it's also an encouragement to you today. You may say to yourself, well, I can identify with this clay pot. That's me. Poor, unworthy, frail. And you are. But God has chosen you to give the surprising privilege, He's given you and me, if you know Christ, the surprising privilege of bearing the treasure of the gospel, however small a part you may think you play. But why does God choose to work in this way? Our verse gives us the answer. Striking paradox, a surprising privilege, finally a special purpose. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We looked at those three contrasts between clay, jars of clay and treasure. Quality, beauty, durability. But now the Apostle Paul brings them all together and focuses on a key element between power and weakness, between divine power and human weakness. Here's how God chooses to work. The divine principle God uses is power in weakness. Notice two things. First of all, in our weakness, we experience God's power. In our weakness, we experience God's power. When we begin to think too much of ourselves, that we are treasure rather than jars of clay we come to rely on our own resources and strength. But when we realise that we are weak jars of clay, it's then that we acknowledge that we need God's strength. It's then that we begin to experience God's power. And I simply ask you, as a pastor and also a fellow member, should we not be experiencing more of God's power in our fellowship? God's saving power. See, the The greatest strength of Charlotte Chapel, I think, is its greatest weakness. There's too many people in church. So, what do you mean? Say, you come to this church and you look around and you say, wow, we're doing really well. It's full of people. All those young people, students, whatever it is. We're starting to think we're the treasure instead of the jars of clay. When did revival break out in Charlotte Chapel? When it was down to 30 members. It's about to close. Nobody had any misapprehension that they were the treasure, but they sought God and God blessed them. Now, I'm not saying empty the church and go away. (laughs) What I'm saying is this. That's also our blessing, that God has blessed us, but to whom much is given, much is expected. And it's only when we realize our weakness that we experience God's power. And that is why God sometimes, in fact, often allows experiences of weakness, personally and corporately, so that we might experience his power. In the opening section of 2 Corinthians, in the opening chapter, the Apostle Paul describes a near-death experience he had. And he says it happened for a reason. Indeed, he said, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead see how often we rely on ourselves until we find ourselves in a situation where relying on ourselves is not going to be enough to see us through maybe you're in that situation this morning An experience of great weakness and you wonder what god is doing can i simply suggest to you and gently because it may be very painful and hurtful that god is allowing that experience in order that you might prove his power. See, the Apostle Paul is speaking here from personal experience. You remember that later in this letter, if you know the Bible well, he describes a really weakening experience that he had. He describes it as a thorn in my flesh. Three times he pleaded with God to take it away. I'm sure what he said to God was, Lord, this is weakening my ministry. Take it away and then I can be more effective for you. Here's what God said. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. And a lesson well learned, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think it was Kenneth Taylor in the Living Bible, who translated it, paraphrased it, God's, sh- God's power shows it best in weak people. God's power shows it best in weak people. And this leads to a second thing, of course. The divine principle of power and weakness. In our weakness, we experience God's power. In our weakness, we display God's power. Why does God choose to convey the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay? So that people will focus on the treasure, not the jar of clay. In short, so that no one gets confused about which is the treasure and which is the jar of clay. And you see, God chooses to use not just any old jars of clay, but jars of clay that are particularly poor and worthy and fragile. He even uses cracked pots. Not cracked pots, but cracked pots. Speaking about this some time ago in a missionary conference a couple of months ago, folks were sharing afterwards, and one of them said, God uses cracked pots like us so that the light has more space to shine through the cracks. Lovely thought, isn't it? See, God delights in using people who don't count much by the way of the world's standards. In fact, in his first letter to these Christians in Corinth, the Apostle Paul reminds them of this. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world the despise things. Things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. So the result, of course, is this. Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? Not us, but God the divine principle, power and weakness. In our weakness, we experience God's power. In our weakness, we display God's power so that the glory goes to Him and not to us. On our anniversary, our focus should be entirely not on the jars of clay, but on the treasure and on God Himself. To God be the glory, great things He has done. Not we have done. And as God works through our weakness, people see where the real power lies. Not in us, but in God. And people are then drawn to the light, like moths to the flame, and transformed by the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let me conclude with Something I've used before, it's worth repeating in this context. listen carefully and I'm almost through, two minutes. It's an imaginary report sent by a management consultancy company. Here's what it says. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for leadership positions in your new organisation. All of them have now taken our tests. We've arranged personal interviews for each one of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the kind of enterprise you are undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot have radical leanings and both registered high on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. All the rest, as they say, is history. A history that God continues to repeat as he places his treasure in Jar's of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all surpassing power belongs to God not to us. To God be the glory. Let's pray together.